This is a Pivotal Conversations podcast. Guys, just before we get started, if you're loving the podcast, can you please go leave us a five-star review on Spotify and please make sure that you subscribe on whatever channel that you listen to us on. It helps us out dramatically. One of the hugest differences uh, between a founder mindset and an employee mindset is the velocity, frequency and intensity of the feedback loop, right? You know, so we all have like needs-based learning that we do. We Google a word or we watch a help video or whatever it is, right? As an employee though, like you get to do that learning and you do it and you test it out and like 90% of companies have pretty crappy performance management and accountability. So even if you completely mess it up, you're probably okay. As a result of that, you don't have any really high intensity learnings and the frequency of that's typically a lot slower, right? Whereas in a founder, it's like, if this succeeds, you survive. If it doesn't, you die. Like mm-hmm. the company in some cases literally ends or you run out of money, right? Um, so the intensity of each of those like loops of feedback is much higher and also the frequency is much higher because you can't rely on you can't walk down the hallway to a friend in ops or a friend in you know pr or design to help you with something it's like you've got no money you've got no resources no people no nothing so you have this needs-based learning with an incredibly intense high frequency feedback loop which is why founder learning typically drastically outpaces that of employees but purely because of the requirement for it too all right toby welcome to the podcast thanks for we just me, had man. an amazing conversation that was probably about a 10 minute conversation that we'll, we'll retouch on um but I'm really excited to to chat with you. I think, um, and honestly, based on the conversation we just had, I think um, a lot of we've had a lot of guests on that um, may be great operators, or they mm. you've got a really great skill set in a particular function of a business. Yeah. Um, but I think you know, doing my research on yourself over the last week or so, but then I've been following for for a little mm. while. I think having a successful exit of a company. Um, you know, um, it is, it's not something that a lot of people have been able to do. Um, and it's also not something that a lot of people at a young age have been able to do, which I think is a, is a whole nother thing. Cause like a lot of our audience are, you know, they're young, Mm. you know? And so it's not that they won't take value from say someone who's a lot older and has done it, but I think Mm. it's more, it can be, it it can be a lot more relatable. Um, so really excited to chat to you. Um, just about all things business, but we might start with, um, I guess, your journey in business and and kind of sure. you know how did it all get started? Because I know you're a, you're a personal trainer uh, initially, yep. so that was I, I originally yep. was a personal trainer as well <laughs> um, at at a young age. So I'd love to kind of just hear the whole journey and and you know we can maybe pull some lessons out. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, yeah, so I mean officially, you know, uh, I started uh, my career you know, in business, you know, as a personal trainer, which uh, I don't very often add this context, but, you know, the, the, the transparency that's needed there is that I liked health and fitness and personal training literally was a solution to a problem I had, which was, you know, I, um, I'd, you know, gotten expelled from high school and sort of barely finished. And when I came out, I wanted to do a degree and had to sit a whole bunch of tests to get into it. So I get into this degree, a double degree in law and commerce and I'm like, awesome do it part-time for a year and I'm like, I'm going nowhere. Like this is too slow. So 
I had been working at, you know, in another business at a music store um, and was like, cool, what job's flexible enough to allow me <laughs> yeah, to make yeah, yeah. enough 100%. money to get by, right? And so personal training was like literally just a means to an end at that point. Um, yeah, I'd been lifting weights and whatever for a while and, and had always played sports, so I was into it. But I definitely, you know, I definitely was not the personal trainer that was like, I exist solely to kind of like change people's lives. I became very passionate about it, but that wasn't the initial reason for it. Yeah, got into that and that was, you know, I my first kind of real independent job basically and that allowed me to kind of realize, well, if you do nothing, nothing happens, right? Like, you know, you don't make any money and so quickly realized that, then went through a whole series of kind of iterations to, you know, boot camps. I was kind of providing consulting to large corporates on their you know, internal health um, schemes and a variety of things and then eventually kind of stumbled across this thing called Instagram and the internet and, you know, after that, Got into ebooks after you know, having met um, Kayla, who's my partner at the time, and we, um, yeah, we had some like pretty cool success with that. And then after a couple of years, through a whole variety of different sort of deliberate strategic thinking, went well, we should do an app and et cetera, et cetera, which eventually then became Sweat, and yeah, now we've now we've sold the company for for nine figures. So yeah, wow. So um, before we move on to the next question, I'd love to kind of go in because it seems to me like you had that entrepreneurial kind of spirit in you from mm. the very beginning. Cause like I can resonate with that in the sense that I was a personal trainer, but it wasn't and, and very much similar. Like mm. it was like, because I tried to study at uni. Yeah. It was the only thing that was going to work for me part time. I ended up quitting uni and, and not doing it yeah. anyway, but like, um, you know, you didn't just kind of stick to that route. Even when you were a PT, you, you talked about doing some, cons- some consulting to corporates and, yep. and discovering these kind of things. I'd love to hear a little bit about that entrepreneurial spirit in you, but also like education. So like where, you know, do, yeah. were you spending all this time learning through those periods about mm. business and that was where you spent most of your, yeah. your, your, your you know, your time? Yeah, so I think... Um, uh for, for a whole bunch of the wrong reasons, you know, as a as a much younger guy, I just wanted to win, right? Like I just wanted to win really badly. And uh, to me, at that point in time, you know, winning was getting from one dollar to two dollars. So that was you mm-hmm. know how I kind of measured my success, and, and and probably to a degree, like even my value, my self value, right? And so, I um, for a variety of reasons, kind of based on other experiences in my life, you earlier on, like I just had a really hardcore work ethic, like so to you know, to get to the gym at like 5.30 in the morning, you know, do clients for five or six hours, go to uni, come back, train, do another five or six hours, leave at 10 p.m., go home. Like that was, that was quite normal. Like I it never even registered to me that that was abnormal. And so I, you know, was able to kind of fill up a lot of my sessions with, you know, um, you know, customers early on. And, you know, sort of two or three months into that was like, oh, I'm, I'm like the busiest person here, you know, and was by virtue of that making the most money. And then, I guess at this point in time, you know, I kind of that, you know, in some regards, you know, that unhealthy mentality of like, cool, but more, yeah, but more, but more, but more. Then I had a lot of these sort of conversations with myself. I was like, well, what is like, how do I get more here? Like, there's only so many hours that the gym is open a day. Yeah, obviously I can charge a little bit more money per session. How's, you know, like, how's this work (laughs) sort of thing? And so, um, uh, Little, little did I know, like I didn't really understand this at the time, but basically what I was doing was, you know, pushing to the limits um, within effectively like a time-based service business model. Like that's, I, I was kind of like hitting the ceilings and going, the levers are number of hours in a day, dollars per hour, like, you know, what, what's the go here? And so 
I would sit there with like spreadsheets and my, you know, my iPad at the time trying to figure out like how do I resolve this problem. And eventually I kind of came to the conclusion of, well, hold on, really interesting opportunity here. There's these mums that come to the gym between like 8.30 and 12. I train heaps of them. They're little friends. Maybe I can train them together, give them a 20% discount per person or 30% discount per person, but do two at the same time. Mm-hmm revolutionary for me at the time you know <laughs> yeah, pretty yeah, obvi- yeah. pretty obvious yeah. reflection but revolutionary at the time yeah 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 you know start doing that and increase my hourly rate by like 30 or 40 percent like you know overnight so then start doing more of that and then eventually that led to well i could just do groups like bigger groups can't do it in the gym where do i do it i was like oh there's a park across the road you know so literally set up some boot camps which then kind of said well but hold on how do i fill those with members and this was my first kind of unofficial foray into subscription right you know how do i get them to sign up and show up and retain and all this sort of junk um and that was great because i was like oh i'll go from making you know 60 bucks now to 100 then 100 to 500 bucks an hour you know and then oh but now i need more hours because yeah, not everyone can train problem. you know so same problem different you know different scenario and um off the back of uh, you know, just, just kind of by chance off the back of running those boot camps and doing some indoor stuff, I ended up having a few clients that work for large corporates and they were like, oh, well, a couple of times a year, our business would love to have you come do this. Would you be able to run a class for like 50 or 60 people for five grand or 10 grand? And I was like, well, obviously, you know, <laughs> yeah, like to yeah, me, yeah. that was like, I had, you know, struck gold. Um, and then off the back of, you know, just did that for a little while for a couple of decent sized businesses in, in my hometown in Adelaide. And, um, you know, then the, you know, like the HR teams or whatever from those companies was like, oh, well, like, you know, do you have any materials that you could like give our, you know, employees so that we could have a look at, mm. you know, like what's your philosophy on like, you know, um, nutrition and exercise and how can, you know, this help our, help our employees have better, uh, you know, better health, generally speaking, right, which is, for a lot of the very large businesses are quite a big investment area, you know, for their, for their team members. Um, which then led me to, I was like, well, you know what? Like I actually have been providing some of these, you know, um, I don't even call them eBooks, just guides, you know, at the time to some of my customers. Cause they were like, Oh, can you write me workouts or can you give me a suggestion for some healthy meals and recipes and such? And I was like, well, yeah, maybe I can augment that like into, you know, packages. Right. Mm-hmm. Which was, informally kind of the inception of the ebook you know model which came to me and so i was selling these things for like 60 to 100 bucks they were pretty crappy at the time and you know compared to where i ended up um but that was what kind of led to that and then that happened at the same time with these boot camps happening and instagram and social media and the internet kind of all you know uh merging together all of a sudden a whole bunch of uh, people online like well hold on i really like your boot camps can you come train me in Sydney or I'm in Russia or America or countries I'd like never even heard of, didn't even know existed at this point. And so all of these steps were quite logical. It was like, well, I'm not going to run boot camps there. I can't control it. I can't control the quality of the trainer. I can't control that. I can only control this book. So yeah, let's go ahead and do that, which is what Kayla and I, you know, then sort of started doing. And throughout that journey and then pretty much from here onwards you know to your remark earlier around education like the learning curve is like vertical you know because there's too many problems to solve to keep up with right and that's really where uh yeah the intensity kind of like you know 10x basically it's an interesting uh, like the the dichotomy of learning because you have no other choice to and Mm. then also like because i find that and i I, this was me at one point as well was like you spend i spent a lot of time just learning Mm. and not actually you know like doing yeah and you can get stuck in that learning mentality and and just kind of keep 
you know educating yourself through many different means for the mm. sake of doing it instead of going no like force yourself into a place where you have to learn the thing that's going to yeah. solve the problem that you're currently having well and the feedback loop right like mm. the velocity of feedback so one of the things i try to explain to you know, a lot of the um, team members i work with either at sweat or, or at other companies now is that one of the hugest differences uh, between a founder mindset and employee mindset is the velocity frequency and intensity of the feedback loop right you know so we all have like needs-based learning that we do we google a word or we watch a help video or whatever it is right as an employee though like you get to do that learning and you do it and you test it out and like 90 90 percent of companies have pretty crappy performance management and accountability so even if you completely mess it up you're probably okay as a result of that you don't have any really high intensity learnings and the frequency of that's typically a lot slower right whereas in a founder it's like if this succeeds you survive if it doesn't you die like mm-hmm. the company in some cases literally ends or you run out of money right um so the intensity of each of those like loops of feedback is much higher and also the frequency is much higher because you can't rely on you can't walk down the hallway to a friend in ops or a friend in you know pr or design to help you with something it's like you've got no money you've got no resources no people no nothing so you have this needs-based learning with an incredibly intense high-frequency feedback loop, which is why founder learning typically drastically outpaces that of employees, but purely because of the requirement for it too. Mm. Mm. Love it. And I think it just kind of talks to like business owners as well. Like if you are starting out, you, you know, spend more time doing the work that you or like you know generating the yeah. sales and, yeah. and then solve a problem once it comes don't learn about yeah. what you need to do in two years when you don't need that right yeah. now it's it's an interesting thing right like um and a lot of people like a lot of uh, a lot of people i met over the years and, and some of the people i work with now like they're constantly shocked at the discomfort i'm like what like what 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 are you surprised about you know like you're in an incredibly unstable, uncertain, high-risk environment dealing with things more often than not that you know nothing about. Like, this is fully uncharted territory. It should suck. Like, it should be really uncomfortable. Like, and th- that notion of, like, this is normal, like, in inverted commas, this is normal, that, you know, when I meet with a lot of people, they're like, that's really alleviating because I feel like this is crazy. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, the more crazy it is, it's probably more normal than, you know, than what you actually realize and understand, right? I, I find that a lot with the people management side as well. Like, yeah. the, you know, um, the confrontation that can happen in business that, yeah. you know, um, in the early days, you're just like, you kind of almost take everything personal. And then you, oh, once you get further on, you realize it's like, hey, none of this yeah. is personal. It's mm. literally just what needs to happen yeah. to make sure we get to where we need to get to. Yeah. Well, and this is like a, interesting thing right i mean i i have um you know quite a firm view on you know self-education in the sense that more more books are sold that are like biographies or stories about a journey that happened than actual practical information and knowledge that can be applied you know acutely right Mm. uh and then so you know if you use kind of confrontation with employees or, or just you know people in general in business like People often wonder, you know, they read, you know, book X, Y, Z about this company. Like, oh, but this company had that culture. It's like, cool, but how do they make decisions? And they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they don't really know. And it's like, well, you can't expect to rely on this material to, you know, perform this particular task, right? And all of the things in business, no matter how big the business is or small, early stage or mature, simple, complex, any industry, whatever, like all of these problems are 
almost exactly the same. If you extract the subject matter of you know mechanical engineering or whatever it was that we were speaking about before, it's like people problems are still people problems. Like they're either partners, contractors, employees. You measure their success the same way. Like it's all it's all one system, right? Yeah, and that's what we were talking about before mm. with with you know your expertise and so on. Um, I'd love to go into the early days of Safe Sweat now mm. and and kind of go. Um, what were two or three things that you guys did really well um, that really helped it get off the ground? So mm-hmm. trying to, you know, extract lessons of like, if, if you're in a startup, yeah. what are those things that, you know, you've experienced mm-hmm. um, that you guys did that really helped you kind of grow and, and get to that next phase yeah. that you're looking for? Yeah, so, um, you know, headline statement, right? Understand growth, right? And that's that, that sounds like, you know, really simple, uh, but... I can confidently say if you speak with you know nine out of ten founders and say why is your business growing right now, they will not actually be able to articulate to you mechanically like wh- why is it actually growing? Mm-hmm. You know why are you growing? Why are you succeeding? What does the next bit of growth look like? How's it going to happen? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, right? You know and yeah, gr- growth like business or growth in business is really it's a output yeah you know, like or an outcome of the system of operating the organisation ultimately right. Um, and not a lot of people actually understand their business model. Not a lot of people actually understand, oh, if I pull this lever, you know, that might happen. Or if I invest money here, this might happen. Most growth is actually accidental, misunderstood, and most people appropriate it to spend more money on ads, right? But that's like such a, such a, you know... It's a problem. Uh, it's, it's not a problem until it is, right? Uh, like, that's the thing. Absolutely, yeah. right? And, and so, like, understanding growth, uh, you know, probably also kind of pairs with this notion of, like, make your growth predictable, control the growth, don't grow too fast. And these are all things that, you know, for each of these statements, you know, sure, I could name or any other person that's in the business community could name, oh, but this company did. It's like, cool, but we don't want to make our decisions based on one freak story that happened. Which yeah. is how, which is, which is the, that's the decision-making process for everybody. Why aren't we this? Right. It's like, well, this is a thing, you know, and like you can read every Steve Jobs book. You can read Shoe Dog with Phil Knight. You can read The Culture Book by Netflix. You can read Facebook Story. All of those things, like, that's great. But they're like, they're not even unicorns. Like they're unicorns within unicorns. Like, yes, there's a lot to be learned. Like there is so much to be learned from those organizations, but there is millions of other businesses that were successful that had none of those criteria or characteristics. And it's, in my opinion, safer you know, and wiser to learn and understand how does any business grow? You know, why does it grow? What should we think about when growing and try to operate a company that way? And if you find yourself in a one in 10 million or one in 100 million scenario, then do all the irrational things. But most people you talk to are not in that situation. So we should try to understand you know, kind of the principle, you know, as opposed to the outlier, right? Yeah. But yeah, as, as a headline, right, like I think under, like understanding growth in your business and your model and your industry is a really simple but very much misunderstood concept that I think people, you know, fall in the trap of the, the advertising thing that, you know, you said before, people go, positive return on ad spend, more budget, and they go, awesome, you know, what happens? Well, revenue goes up. Gross margin goes down, EBITDA ratio goes down, a whole bunch of operational problems show up because they weren't, you know, operationally structured. Oh shit, I can deliver a thousand units, but I can't deliver twenty thousand units a month. Crap, now I've got unhappy people. you know, so you, all of these things are quite predictable, right? But people get too distracted by but our revenue could be this big or we have to grow at this percentage as opposed to being like, Well, cool, that's three months, six months or twelve months, but how do you exit? 
you know, which comes right back to like, what is the long-term strategy? Like how do all these decisions contribute to the big picture? It's uh, a little naive to kind of go more ads, more money, right? There's two threads there that I want to pull on a little bit and, and for you to give some insight is the first one is like, how, like when you say understand growth, like tactically, what does that look like? Because, mm-hmm. you know, we can sit here and say understand growth. Yep. Me personally, I'd love for you to touch on data because I one thing one I think yep. one thing in the early days that I found in business and just as well was like to be able to understand growth, you have to have good mm. data. Yeah. And a lot of the time, that you know, that's I, I feel like that's something that a lot of businesses don't do in the early days. So I'd yep. love for you to touch on maybe what you think the tactics are and yeah. what goes into that. What you know, how do you actually start to understand growth for your yep. company? Yeah. Um, and and what we were talking about before, so. The, the, the core objective of the business mm. long term. So yeah. are you building a lifestyle? Are you building to sell? How does that change mm-hmm. fundamentally, you know, what mm-hmm. it looks like, say, from two to five years, five to seven yep. and so on? Yeah. So, yeah, and this is all just off the cuff, right? Yeah, of you course, know, of so, uh, like, I, I would suggest, uh, you know, gr- growth is an option. It is a choice, right? And what I mean by that is, you know, at any given point in time, you know, sit down in a business and go, the, the conversation doesn't start with how do we grow, right? Like growth is a solution to a problem, mm-hmm. right? Growth is not an obligation. It's a responsibility, you mm-hmm. know? So uh, to, to kind of add some more context or flavor to that, um, yeah, if you're a business at any given point in time, you should, all of your decisions, in my opinion, every decision should come back to your strategy always, right? Almost no startups have strategies right but can you just explain what strategy is because yeah. again i know that's a it sounds like a really obvious question yeah, but sure. a lot of people i find will be like oh my marketing strategy yeah you know they're not they're not kind of sure not sure. The bird's eye view yeah all right well let, let's let's do that so uh so you know i so i facilitate these like strategic planning days um with founders and most of them go sort of similarly at the beginning because i normally start off the day by saying cool so we're here for a strategic planning day what's a strategy right and so we normally spend out 30 minutes answering that question right um, and obviously some people have more or less experience some of these people have mbas or degrees or whatever right but they normally start off similarly and normally they go i go what is a strategy on you know whiteboard or piece of butcher's paper and they go cool what's a plan i'm like awesome what's a plan then the conversation sometimes pauses there or sometimes there's a little bit about well uh, stuff you're going to do to get some you know to hit a goal or, or, or reach a goal or whatever I'm like, cool, well, you know, kind of on a more practical basis, you know, we can expand that definition. So, yes, it's we have a goal, of course. There's obviously work that has to be done to get to that goal. Yes, we, we most people can kind of get that far. Then we can go, cool, but that work requires resources. So, there's resources that have to go into that work. So, then we can kind of get as far as saying, well, so far, a strategy is... Yeah, a deliberate commitment of resources to work to achieve an outcome. Resources being, you know, time, money, mm-hmm. human right, people, you know, human resources, uh, whatever else it might be. Work can be anything, a task, a project, an initiative, doesn't matter. Anything that is done with these resources, right? And the outcomes will can be varied, but typically, you know, people are building through an exit or they're building through a revenue EBITDA goal or whatever it might be that they're building through. And there's nuance with that too. But even that definition is still technically not complete because you don't like you don't go, oh, I have resources, what work do I do? Oh, this is a great goal. In the same way that you don't go, I have a great goal, what work should I do? These are the resources. There's there's more that comes with that. And so at the beginning, 
you know, really there's this articulation of reason or reasoning, right? You know, so why, you know, like, why are you doing this? So I often, you know, kind of propose, and this is my definition, it's not, you won't see sure, this in sure. Harvard Business School, right? But, you know, to me, you know, a strategy or a strategic plan really is an articulation of your reasoning and an explanation of your commitment of resources to work to achieve the outcomes that you've set, right? So how does that relate to growth? Well, growth might be a goal, you know, so you shouldn't just grow. Like you should say, well, we want to hit this number. Growth is required. What is the method of growth that we will choose to achieve this goal, which Mm -hmm. has a whole bunch of other considerations that come with it. So when we talk about understanding growth, it's firstly like to contextualize it, you know, growth is a process and a system that's applied to achieve the outcome as a part of your strategy. It's not just spend more money. It's like, not the objective. Correct. Yeah, right. Okay. You know, you might, and, and to, again, to provide more flavor here, it's like, well, we want to, we are currently worth $20 million. I want to sell the business for $50 million. What is the financial profile that this business must have to feasibly and fairly be valued at $50 million? Well, it's X, Y, Z. Cool. Therefore, I have to grow revenue, EBITDA, and, you know, gross margin to hit these numbers. Awesome. So it's not just revenue. Yeah, we have to maintain a gross margin. We have to manage OPEX. We have to look at, you know, how we actually achieve that sustainably. So then all of a sudden, you know, when we talk about understanding growth, Sorry, you're, right. <laughs> you're right. Um, so then we talk about understanding growth. Well, all of a sudden there's a lot more considerations, right? It's like, well, okay, so growth actually to us at this point in time for our business at this stage of the journey means this. We want to achieve that, making sure that it's not, like, because you don't want a line to go up and then come back down. So then it has to be sustainable. Well, what's sustainable growth mm. look like? Well, unit economic feasibility, channel dependency, supply dependency, you know, audience dependency. There's so many. Like, yeah, I could, I could be oh, here. Yeah, like, I, I could be here for days, exactly, right? Hundred yeah. percent. But, but the fact that I can go in five minutes, go to that point, and ask five or ten questions that instantly break so many of the kind of automatic decisions that people make to grow their business. Is a, is a really good conversation starter for founders because if they can't comfortably uh, you know answer those and like hand and heart go like I've actually considered it and I have a legitimate answer not just a oh shit this sounds kind of like a, a good response <laughs> yeah. uh, instantly you should go well should you be growing because like growth being able to grow a business is a capability no different to being able to do marketing or being able to do product design like it's a skill set right but that skill set has to be based on good reasoning. Yeah, and um, and just to add context to this, the reason, like one of the primary reasons why I understand this is because I made all those mistakes. Yeah, of course. I was the guy that was like, oh my God, like our LTV to CAC is awesome. Let's just jack up ad spend and like three exercise of the company. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh shit, well, the app is breaking, team members are unhappy, we have no org, like we have no feasible and sustainable org structure oh, yeah, shit, we did talk about selling the company. Oh, what's that mean we need? Oh, all of a sudden the margin's gone. Yeah, and like, so all these problems present themselves. Like, it, we almost blew up the company, my fault entirely, you know, um, as a result of trying to do that, you know? So it's kind of, I forget what the saying is, but it's like a baptism with fire or whatever, right? Like, I learned all this and got burnt on the way through, which is why I'm super, like, apprehensive, you know, about kind of this committing other organizations to just grow, right? Yes. So there's a lot there, but I think... I, I found the interesting part of, and this almost takes us to that next fundamental phase in the business, right? Is like, mm. 
okay, you're trying to achieve growth at all costs as a startup because you kind of have to. Mm. But then, in my opinion, you kind of reach, There's a there, there will be a point and it's going to be different for the different types of businesses and so on, but there is a point where your unit economics will change mm -hmm. fundamentally, right? Because there's more, like you said, operationally mm -hmm. to deliver this, and you said it before, to deliver this 5,000 times mm -hmm. as a rough example, you know, random number, to do that at, say, 20,000 units mm. is, is very different. Um, and I've seen this in a, in a business who mm. had rapid growth, um, but, and it was a service, but every, um, you know, there was, I think, 20, 25 employees in the business, 24 of them mm. generated revenue. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right? So, so, like, that would be the next phase. I'd love for you, and, and, and touching on that, because... And this is gonna. This could get a little bit deep on on mm. some some knowledge based stuff, but I found and and we can tie this back into strategy because mm. I think I think it'll kind of it'll be a good kind of lesson for people, especially for people in the beginning. Like how like when we're talking strategy, how far into the future are you thinking, mm -hmm. right? Because I think that's in itself a, a big one, and then. Mm. What are the different phases that we've just talked about where, you know, um, we were just kind of mentioned where you mm. get to that point where there's going to be need, need to be more support and operational yeah. investment to support, you know, the, the growth that you are having. And, and, and you know, is can you touch on as well? There's a lot of questions there, I know that, but mm. they all kind of tie in. Like, when isn't it a good time to grow? Mm. Yeah, good good question, right? Um. So yeah, it's it, to probably a short answer to that last one, right? It's it's not a good time to grow if it's not going to positively contribute to the long term goal. In short, right? You know, so and and to to kind of cascade that, it's like, well, yeah, if you're losing money on every customer you acquire, it's obviously not a good idea. That's not going to contribute to the long term. You know, if you're going to grow, but then you can't keep up with it, and then you have to invest a whole bunch of money to kind of backtrack to move forward, that's probably not a good thing either, right? Yeah. So. I think the the simple logic is if if growth is not if, if growth is not an answer that or, or a, a process that can contribute to your long term goal, you, there's more to think about. And yeah, I think like as well, like a lot of people have this kind of you know mystic or mystified view of growth that it's just here to here, you know, and it's linear, right? Yeah, you know, in relation to what you were getting at before, it's like cool, five thousand units to twenty thousand units of production. Theoretically, you know, economics says that you should achieve economies of scale and it should get cheaper per unit over time. Maybe. But marketing says that normally as you continue to excel and push channels and push audiences as frequency goes up, you get degrading returns. So that's not great for economics like unit mm. economics over time um also when you think about you know growth of an organization right you know you don't um do 10 percent more units and then get 10 percent more staff you don't <laughs> you don't go oh, i needed an arm and a leg of an ops person to help with freight and distribution right you know so you have these like lumps of costs that you know come in over time and you're constantly to a degree forward investing you know yeah. right and so it's not a b c d you know in a perfect line right you know the growth might the revenue might look a little bit like that very rarely right but the expenses go doof you know stepped like this over time because that's the way that it yeah, the business works you can't recruit half a person more often than not right um in terms of you know like uh you know how far are we looking into the future you know when strategic planning uh i think 
I think the first thing is that strategic planning is an action that you should do every single day, right? And that's like a very controversial statement. People go, oh, but we plan three times a year and that's all we do. It's like, okay, awesome. But if you're doing it three times a year, there's 362 opportunities you're missing to get better at what you're doing, right? Um, So like strategic planning or strategic thinking or running an organization, you know, that way, that, that philosophy really is that everything you do every day ultimately should contribute to the strategy, either updating the strategy, executing against the strategy or learning more about whether the strategy is you know, right. Um, if you, if you kind of get more direct at the question and go, well, we are actually writing the document, how often should we write the document? Normally, um, the way that I consider this is that, because uh, like a strat- strategy or business plan is ultimately an artifact, like it's a document that you create. There's different sections of it that will look further or f- more far or less far into the future. Um, and there's sections of it that will change more and less frequently, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, you know, setting like big, hairy, audacious goals, you know, and aiming like many, many years into the future, that probably won't change that often. You might set that at the beginning of your journey and you might update it every couple of years, right? And that normally would be looking five years into the future or three to five years into the future, right? The next level below that, the way that I, you know, my, my philosophy of this is, well, then I kind of come back to 12 months, right? So, and the question that I propose there is that if this is our goal three to five years into the future, yep. where we want to get, what are the immediately obvious things that we need to achieve in the next 12 months to move us directionally closer to that? And you know, normally frame those up with objectives or how, how focus areas, how whatever word people want to use. Yeah. And then I go one layer beneath that and I go, cool, so if that's what we have to do in this 12-month period, what work do I need to achieve this quarter to move us closer to that one-year thing? And so the way that I very very often articulate this is that, you know, you're never going to be able to aim perfectly accurate, you know, three, five, seven, ten years, depending on what business you're in, you know, into the future. So create a ring fence around what you know is categorically true, Right to allow you to then, I refer to this as cascading, to then cascade to a year, cascade to a quarter. Because the reality is you can't even aim 12 months into the future, especially with young companies. How could you possibly? You don't even know what feature set you're going to be building in three weeks. There's no way. So, Can you give me an example of what you mean by categorically true? So like, Mm -hmm. because you're talking about in seven years. Yeah. So so like what kind of research goes into that and, and what is that, you know, for a company trying to set that potentially for themselves? Yeah. Because I know that's a difficult thing to do. Sure. To look that far in the, what, does that, what, what, what does that look like? Yeah, so um, my answer to like pretty much every question in business is the same thing. It depends, right? Yeah, course, um, yeah. And uh, so to, to frame that up, I'd suggest, you know, if you're an organization like Apple, like what planning are you doing for 10 years? Well, you're going, what are the mega macro demographic trends that are occurring, industry trends that are occurring, and where do we want to dump like hundreds of millions of dollars? And so right now they're going, or over the last three to five years and for the next three to five, they're going, awesome. You know, like OTT and streamed entertainment, Apple Music, Apple TV, you know, cool. OTT gaming, arcade, you know, that's, they've obviously invested there and will continue to. Yeah, then they're going, cool. What are the next massive five to 10 year, you know, mega macro trends? Healthcare. You know, like, and they've already been there for like 10 plus years anyway, right? That, yeah. That's what, the way that they're thinking. You know, for an organization that's much younger, um, not that that style of thinking is useless, um, but it's certainly less valuable. Why? Well, you don't even have seven months in some cases or seven years of trading history. Very hard to use any internal or historical data. Um, 
what most people are doing for the first two, three, four years of their business is really ultimately validating their initial hypothesis, which is this market wants this product. Yeah. And then trying to move their product um, and market closer together to get product market fit, which is a, an interesting term in itself. Um, so when it comes to like planning for three, five, seven years, normally the headlines are quite similar. It's like, well, okay, well, we have some stupid, huge, hairy, audacious goal that we want to achieve, sell for a squillion dollars, whatever it might be. Let's just use that as an example, right? Well, if your goal is to sell a business, any business, a whole bunch of things are categorically true. No one wants to work for five to seven years to sell a company they have to work in for another five to seven years. <laughs> and if you do, you're massively the minority, right? Yeah. So if that's true, well, instantly one objective has to be to design a company that's not relying on you. That's categorically true, yeah. right? Uh, if you want to sell a business, normally you want to sell it where you can sell it uh, at a point in time on its maturity curve where you're achieving what I would refer to as value maximization. That's no one wants to sell a company for less than they think it's worth. That's categorically true. So therefore, there's a whole bunch of criteria. We must be accelerating growth at a percentage of year on year. We must have certain financial profile. Mm-hmm. Uh, we must be able to sell a story that indicates significant future growth, etc., etc., etc. They're all categorically true. So even if you just use those two examples and you go, let's say that's five to seven years. Well, instantly for this year, cool. How do I continue to design our organisation to make it less dependent on me? And so it's like, we'll implement these controls, recruit these people, design the company structure this way, get rid of these tasks off my desk, as simple things as simple and as small as that, right? Because that contributes to the end goal, right? But a lot of people uh, are spending more of their time figuring out how do I make money? And that question is totally valid for people who are maybe in year one or year two. But after you've gotten to the point where you can validate that you're selling stuff, it instantly all becomes about five to seven years normally anyway. If you're spending all your time figuring out after two or three years, can I sell a product? It's like you probably have other questions to ask about, you know, your business feasibility. All right, guys, I want to give a massive shout out to our major sponsors, BizCover. Without them, we do not get to have the amazing conversations that we're having. And today we're going to talk about fitness business owners, public liability insurance, professional indemnity insurance. The reality is if you are own your own gym, if you are a contractor at a gym uh, or you're an online coach, you're going to need to have your business insured because giving out expertise and running a service in a particular location is going to mean that something can go wrong and you may be liable. And if these things happen, I know that for a small business owner, it can be so detrimental to growth, it can be added stress and it can potentially be fatal for your business. So if you aren't insured, check these guys out and if you are insured, Guess what? It's super easy. It's paperless. You can get insured in 20 minutes and they will give you the best price on insurance that you've seen. Love the business. I've actually been insured with them for 10 years. So their website's in the show notes. Check it out uh, and go get yourself insured. All right, fitness business owners, this one's for you. I was once a personal trainer. I was running my own personal training business and I've been involved in many other health and fitness businesses and the biggest problem that I had and that I know many other fitness business owners have is all the back end, the back end admin, your operations and everything that helps your business operate and run efficiently. So when email services reached out and asked to sponsor the podcast, I was like 100% um, because I just know how much of a pain point that is for so many businesses. Email services are virtual assistants. They are your 
fairy godmothers that help you run and scale your business so that you can do the things that you should be focusing on and not have to worry about the back end. So whether it is your back end admin or operations or creating additional products that allow you to increase revenue, these guys are the missing piece to your business. They will help you scale. They will help you spend more time on the things that you should be spending time on while they take care of the rest. Massive advocate for this service. Wish I had it when I was in my fitness business. Head to emaservices.com.au. The link will be in the show notes. So head there, click on the link uh, and reach out to the team to see how they can help you. And I think it's, I mean, look, the reason I ask that is, is like, because I think to understand what is categorically true, I mm. think especially into the future, but that mm. is a really hard question to answer. It's abstract. Exactly, right? Mm. So, but I think for you just, you definitely cleared that up, which I, I really like the way you thought about it is, um, but so the next, the next, uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about is, okay, you get your startup off the ground, mm-hmm. maybe year three, year four, what's that next you know, what are the things that take you to the next mm. phase in business where, you know, yeah. obviously, and I really love what we've talked about in terms of, you know, what's your objective lifestyle business? Yep. Is it to sell? Yep. W- once you do get to that year three or four, what are the things that you need to start thinking about? And what are the, w- what were some of the, I guess, challenges and tension points that you guys mm-hmm. had? Um, and kind of how did you break through those to kind of yep. get to that, that eventual end point? Yeah, well, let's uh, so maybe we'll come at this. Let, let's come at this from the angle of we have a company. The assumption is that they want to sell at some point in the next three to seven years, yeah. right? And uh, one of the problems that they're having is is that they're looking at their organisation and going, oh, well, we have key man risk because we have talent. I'm going to use Sweat as a case study, mm-hmm. right? So you know, we have key man risk as a, um, a real issue in, a, in our organisation, right? So we have to design away from that. The key man risk in, in Sweat's business was obviously talent. We worked with, you know, uh, early on one big trainer, you know, Kayla. She was the main marketing asset, the main product asset, the main brand asset, and, you know, all these this sort of stuff, right? Um, so we go, okay, cool. We have to address that, you know, number one. Like two, how do we create a growth profile when we were seeking like 30 to 50%, you know, top line growth year on year um, while maintaining a healthy unit economics? How do we... How do we achieve that? How do we address those two problems? Let's just use those, right? That, the, yeah, they're, they're two ones that I think are going to be very helpful for people. Yeah. So uh, the, the key man risk thing is, you know, really straightforward. It's like, well, don't be relying on one person. Don't be relying on them for marketing, for, you know, brand and for product. Pretty simple. That's a pretty simple thing to figure out. But then the complex thing is, well, okay, how do we do that? How do we actually execute that? How do we make it feel authentic? And then how do we make sure that all, because that's an investment, right? How do we make sure that investment then contributes to the second goal, which is design this growth profile that we like, right? Um, and it, before I get into this growth profile thing, you know, one headline sentence, which I very much believe to be true, um, you know, is that every single decision in business is an investment decision. Every single one. Like, if you buy this table, you expect to get a return from it one way or another, right? If you buy a computer, if you recruit an employee, if you pay an influencer to, to do something, they're all, they're all investment decisions, right? It's just that people very often only consider marketing decisions as investment decisions. And that's a really big you know, kind of flaw for, mm-hmm. for a lot of people, mm-hmm. right? Why do I say that? Well, because as we, as we consider you know, designing for growth, right? It's like trying to remove key man risk as an investment. We won't get that return until we successfully achieve exit, but we're investing in increasing the probability that we can sell the company because we identify key man risk as being a big blocker, right? So when we look at that, that's the return, at least one of the returns that we're looking for here. 
when we look at the growth profile piece, you know, I kind of sat back and said, I was like, well, the growth is going to slow down because we're reliant on one marketing asset. We're selling one product and I'll kind of define what that is in a sec, you know, and we're selling it to one market. We have to resolve that. So what does growth look like? How does growth happen? Growth categorically really only can happen on one of two dimensions or a combination of both. You can only grow through product or market or a combination of uh, a combination of both. And what I mean by that is that you know you can sell the same product to the same market and do more. You can optimize it. You can get greater market penetration and product penetration. You can go to a new market, market expansion. You can go to an entirely new market, new market, new development. And on the product side, you can either sell the same product, you can slightly change a product to sell something different that's similar, product expansion, or you can come up with an entirely new product you know, unit, right? There's more to that for people who want to look at it. The Ansoft growth matrix is a great visualization of that for those of you playing at home with access to Google, right? So if that's true... At that point in time, I'm like, cool, we're going to make an investment to fix key man risk. We're also going to make some investments to grow the business. What does this look like? Well, we want to get to a new audience and we want to bring in new talent to create new content streams, which is a new product. So we did product and market expansion at the same time. So we said, okay, well, I'm going to invest in bringing in other trainers that will do gym workouts or yoga workouts or Pilates workouts, or whatever they might have been, because at that point in time, we were only doing minimal equipment at home, high intensity one product that suits one audience right by doing that we're expanding our product footprint that's also making us more appealing to new customers but we specifically want to find people that allow us to do that that have a decent audience size because then that 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 then makes us less dependent on one brand asset so that helps us remove key man risk, right? So you can already see this is very multifactorial, right? It's of not course, like yep. problem A, solution B. There's a lot more that goes into it. So we're like, okay, cool. Well, we'll do that because that'll diversify the consumption of content that happens on our platform. We have greater marketing assets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And that's, that was the key reason for us pivoting from Kayla only to other trainers, right? Because we we're like, well, in three to five years, we want to sell the company. No one's going to buy it if it's just Kayla. Mm-hmm. That's pretty obvious. Oh, well, we could have just done yoga with Kayla. Not that she was into yoga, but we could have made it happen. But that wouldn't have been really authentic and it wouldn't have solved key man risk, right? So there's like lots more considerations here. But as an example and as a case study, right, that's an example of saying, well, we want to exit. This is a barrier to exit. How do we address this barrier or that barrier to exit? What are we going to invest in to do that? And then ultimately executing it. Fortunately, that worked to a degree and it ended up being you know, like a really good decision yeah, in hindsight. Not all decisions were good decisions <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's a really interesting example of you know, kind of pa- pausing at a moment in time and saying, well, we're looking three, five, seven years into the future. We're making a decision about things that we believe to be true here and we're going to take action today to move in that direction because we'd already had you know, feedback from other venture funds and whatever that that was already a headline problem and it was a pretty logical problem to have anyway. So. That is, uh, so that's really, that's, that's so interesting. And I think one of the, there's a question I want to ask around the investment side of it. So, so measuring return, like I would imagine that when you go from, you know, Kayla and, and, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, that one asset to then having to bring other people into the company that have their own assets that Mm -hmm. eventually fund in, that's the union economic kind of question that kind of comes into it of like, Okay, well, we're, we're bringing more people in over here. That's at a cost. Yep. And then we are expecting to bring in more customers over here. Yep. And that's where we're expanding. Yep. 
and obviously um i think it does talk to the the you know when you were talking i'm kind of going yeah this yep. makes a lot of sense because it, it does really talk to the idea that you do have to have a long-term strategy because yep. I feel like a lot of businesses would run into trouble because they don't have that long-term strategy and then mm. they're trying to solve problems that are only in the next one to six months. Yeah, and that's uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, like this is the, and this actually highlights a, a really like fascinating insight that I provide to a lot of people I work with. Uh, you know, like straight up off the top of my head, I can think of like four or five people that I've had this exact conversation yeah, with just yeah. in slightly different ways. And they're like, oh, okay, cool. So, you know, I want to exit for 30 million bucks in seven years time. And I'm like, okay. What, like out of every single goal you've ever set yourself in your life, how many of them did you achieve exactly the amount and exactly at the right time? And the answer is obviously not many, if any, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you go, cool. But you only ever roughly get as far as you aim or as high as you aim. So why don't you sell for $300 million and instead of doing it in seven years, why don't you do it in three years? And they're like, well, but that seems ridiculous. What's the point of that? I'm like, well, aim high, hit high for a start. But also, if you think small, you only design small solutions, right? If you think big, you might mess the solution up. You might completely, you know, you might completely ruin the process, but even the ruined outcome will still be better, more sophisticated and bigger than what you otherwise would have designed Mm. beforehand, right? And so, like, people kind of aim small and hit small, right? And as a result of that, you know, this whole, like, I'm going to think six months forward or even three months or two months forward. It's like, but that's the whole reason you end up constantly in this chase, 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 chase mentality is you're only designing the solution to help you in eight weeks. And it'll take you eight weeks to build it. Then by the time you get there, you've got the whole, that problem again, but slightly bigger. And then you design slightly bigger and slightly bigger and slightly bigger. But you never actually go, well, I'm going to design the solution that'll work for me in three years. Mm. And I can get that done in three months. You know, and then that gives me two years and nine months worth of freedom, you know, like conceptually, right? Um, but a lot of people kind of mess that up, right? And again, like relating to Sweat's thing, this was actually, you know, one of the huge errors on my part being a non-technical founder and a non-technical leader i was only designing things to work today and providing insight to say we want to build this to work today and never once was i going hey well yeah we might actually have to yeah we might actually have to support this on 400 different devices (laughs) on several different platforms we might have to support this in 11 or 12 languages like never was the consideration yeah 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 because it was always designed for now so yeah. my question is why why does this happen right and because fundamentally is it the mismanagement of what we've been talking about in terms mm. of the investment side you know because yeah. the follow-up question for me was about the investment side of this it's like yeah you know um you gotta have a really 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 great accountant but at some point mm-hmm. you also have to understand it yourself yeah what what causes that kind of real short-term kind of almost like chasing the market instead yep. of building the market, you yep. know, that you're going to, you're going to grow into. Like ultimately at the end of the day, it comes back to capability. Right. But like in saying that, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of logic and a lot of data as well to support the fact that knowing too much actually ruins businesses. Okay. Right. Because if you know too much, you won't do dumb things. And a lot of really great things are discovered by doing dumb things. <laughs> right. You know, um, like as an example, right, like I give you a wonderful example. So we were making 20 or 30 million bucks a year, like a 50 percent EBITDA margin when I was at like 23 years old or whatever, selling ebooks. Right. Greatest thing ever. There's no logic at that point in time to put that business in the bin and then go make an app. None. Mm hmm. 
but that was what we did for a variety of other you know reasons that was what we did and that was a decision i made and was my idea to do stupid shit and then you know go and test it um that ultimately you know paid off right if you were a really experienced business person and this is exactly what my accountant at the time said to me is like that's a really dumb idea why would you risk 20 30 million bucks a year at a 50 percent ebitda margin what why, why risk that like what, what uh, for what point so you can go and make less margin with less certainty you know like uh potentially lose a whole Large bunch of investment. money yeah massive investment you know there's not and, and like i completely messed up the process like blew up the whole business on the way of doing <laughs> it um just was really quickly like you know, remediated the the errors and issues but um so yeah so the point is that it's, it's ultimately a capability gap but you don't want to have like too much because if you do, sometimes you don't do the things that are silly that are needed. But I think, um, you know, one, one thing, you guys, I kind of reflect on this is a lot of founders are really hungry to get the win, you know, no different to what I was, which is very important and you need to have that. There's also kind of this like need for practicality and planning and, you know, long-term thinking or strategy, uh, which, you know, I talk about quite a lot. And so I think, yeah, to kind of to to describe this, I think the the perfect or or at least a a much better environment to be in, um, and this is the reason why mentors and coaches and boards or advisory boards or whatever exist is, you have people who are in the business running the business who are effectively blind. Yeah, literally. right. They're yep. blind to anything more than a few months in the future, unless they're quite experienced and you know they they that's a natural you know they have a natural aptitude for that. More often than not, they're going to be blind to the medium to long term future. So. It can be for those people in that scenario, so long as they're making huge progress in the immediate tasks, that's great. But then having a mentor or advisor or a chairman or a board or an advisory board or uh, a committee or, or whatever it might be, and there's they're all different things with their own nuance, right? But like having those is great because it creates tension, right? Uh, and I have this in one of the companies I founded a few years ago, right? Like, you know, myself and the CEO, like we're constantly like smashing because I'm like long term and he's like, Revenue. I'm like long term, and but that's good. Yeah, you know, like that. That actually needs deal. it needs to be there, right? Um, in order for businesses to do, to do good, that has to be a consideration. And again, coming back to one of the examples I provided before about people reading these stories about like Facebook or PayPal or Uber or Airbnb that do these like economically ridiculous things that that play off in the long term. That's that's great. What you also don't hear about those companies is the venture funds that are investing in those businesses have teams of people and teams of founders and advisors and their network and whatever who have you know like they have tens or hundreds of people who are like yep cool marketplace technological expansion geographical expansion into europe into these countries in this industry yeah i got 30 people that have done that before and then they come in and, and they help with it it's not a team of three or four people that are founders first time have done nothing that then go off and do it you never hear about any of that all you see is this the story through the founder's eyes and this massive, you know, rocketing success. But there's actually a lot more stuff that goes on in the background that you never ever hear about that actually is designed to support people to go on those ridiculous journeys, right? So it sounds it sounds to me, and this is just from like listening to you talk, and mm. I can kind of see where we started and why it's important, you know, yeah. like the strategy. But I think it I think for me it's like entrepreneur will drive mm -hmm. it's important also for the entrepreneur to sit back and just reassess where they want to be in mm -hmm. the, like you said the 10 year yep you know the five year the one year um and you need to do that and kind of bringing this back to your 
journey you know you obviously went through that initial growth period with the ebooks and then yeah. you probably had time to sit down and reassess and go okay there's this thing happening over here with apps and yeah potentially we want to get in on that and so then there becomes this new kind of point of or you know this new mm. point where you reassess from and, and look to do that and then the next kind of question from me is how did your role mm. as say founder ceo change through those different phases you know because yeah. i imagine and and uh, it sounds like the and you kind of talked about it boards mm. um coaches mentors mm. accountants like yep. whatever it is that support network need to be your tension because yeah. as the entrepreneur because you are looking over here you're going to drive as hard as you can there mm. and getting the right people around you even in the form of staff yep are there to build the tension to make sure that you're not making these kind of yeah. fundamental, fa yep. fundamentally fatal mistakes. Yeah, and yeah, the the journey for me, which is really kind of again categorically similar or the same for you know for pretty much everyone, not everybody, but for most people, is you know this kind of elusive journey from being in the business to being on the business in terms of the work that you do, right? You know, so I am doing tasks today that need to be delivered to get this project to market or whatever it is, you know, versus I'm thinking about what actually are the future projects we need to do to deliver this goal, right? And so, you know, for like to, to go back to kind of really early, right? You know, I'm writing ads, writing emails, writing blogs, <laughs> responding to yeah. customer support tickets, when we got the first office, I'm painting the walls, I'm going to the furniture shop, like I'm doing all that, you know, stuff, right? Um, and, you know, uh, for a variety of reasons, but the overwhelming one basically being that I had very um, poor leadership and management skills early on, um, you know, meant that I ended up doing a lot of these tasks, like, you know, up until the point that we were doing like 50, 60, 70 million dollars a year in revenue, right? Which... I was regularly called insane for, you know, and that's probably not an untrue statement, you know, at that point in time. Um, yeah, there was a, I went through this kind of like cyclical journey for a couple of years, which um, was very frustrating. Uh, and again, you know, is a reflection of me kind of being very uh, inexperienced, you know, for, for what I was doing. Um, but, you know, I was like, oh, okay, cool. We have no managers. I'll go and recruit people with the job title manager in it. <laughs> yeah. So you can go and do that, recruit three people and say, well, they have manager in their title. Oh, I'm not really sure what that means, and I don't think they know what that means either. I'm like, okay, well, we'll, we'll recruit senior manager. You know, like, and so this, you know, we went through these loops and loops <laughs> yeah. and loops and loops. And yeah, for the longest time, look, I always knew what I needed and knew what I wanted and and whatever, but didn't didn't really have the skills to bring it to life and find the right people. Which you know, I think understanding org design and recruitment is like. It is such a skill and an incredibly valuable one. But again, you can't be good at that without understanding strategy because what are you recruiting for, right? Strategy drives structure, right? Um, and so eventually, you know, kind of got to this point and I had a few good recruits at like the head of or director level in our business um, uh, that really, you know, I recruited them to do stuff for the business and then I learned so much, you know, like off of observing them and I was like, Oh my God, I was like, I'm getting paid to like learn from really smart people here. Um, and we had a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of really great ones. Um, you know, we recruited some, uh, you know, like human resources people, you know, that were really great. Um, we recruited a couple of like product people, which I was able to learn some good stuff from as well. Um, we had, you know, probably for me and what I can kind of observe with a lot of people at the moment, you know, 
one of, you know, if not, one of, if not the most pivotal roles I recruited was at the time we recruited for an operations manager, but the goal was always to have a CEO or, you know, chief operating officer. Um, uh, that man, Adam is actually now the CEO of the business. Um, you oh, know, really? since, yep. since I've stepped down, um, like hands down, like a massive fork in the road for the business. Yeah, this guy completely changed everything and was able to effectively listen to me say, hey, I think we kind of need this sort of thing. And he'd be like, cool, no, it's actually this and this is what it looks like and we're going to do it this way. And I was like, awesome and off we go. And him and I had like, in my opinion, yeah, I'm sure he'd said the same, like a really, really strong working relationship, so critically aligned on so many things. But this guy's got 15, 20 years experience building international businesses right and this was another one of those moments for me yes the journey is great for a variety of reasons but i was like oh my god like i'm learning from just a a wealth of knowledge here yeah um and that completely changed the organization you know that for me honestly i don't think we would have achieved a lot of what we did if we didn't recruit not just that role but that man in particular like he was just such a big contributor to the business and to me as an individual Mm. it's i mean it's such an it's uh, you know like it's crazy what happens when you get mm. someone like that into your business yeah and and it's and instead of because it I mean you mentioned it before but um it's a what's the, uh, good to great yeah Jim Collins Jim yeah. Collins yeah. like yeah um, you either build a business with a thousand helpers mm-hmm. or you know and what we're talking about just there is the complete opposite of that yeah you know like yeah. not the it's the constraint is never you yeah. anymore and when you get someone like that into the business you can kind of see the power yep. that it brings to it, um, which I, is is great, um, and so the CEO role because uh, the the phases in your business and the, your the, your role as a CEO fundamentally changed mm. because you and this is what you're saying is you went mm. from working in the business to then the only thing you were doing was working on the business. Um. I wouldn't say only, but much more of, yeah. you know, like effectively at the end of the journey. And again, this was not, um, I, I don't think it would be fair to say this was my achievement. It was of probably course. more yeah, Adam's yeah. achievement and, and more broadly the team's achievement, but you know, not, not, not kind of including, you know, general weekly meetings that I have to check in on, you know, my direct reports. The business was almost being run in like five or six meetings a month. Like, and that sounds like really extreme, but, and, and this was something that I actually learned, you know, off of Adam, like, you know, we were able to set up five or six kind of like really key, big, important meetings. And some of them would go for a day, right? Like yeah. some of them go for 10 hours or so even spread across two days. Um, but by like having this structure in place and whatever, we were able to do that, which then allowed me a huge amount of time to just, you know, do research, gather insights, meet with other people in the industry, you know, make kind of big long-term decisions, um, ultimately, you know, focus on selling the company and, and, and whatever as well. Um, but, you know, structuring the organization, you know, so that it is run in a decentralized matter um, so that it's not dependent on me showing up. I can contribute to it, but it's not dependent on me showing up so that I can then focus more in the long term. That was always kind of the goal, which, you know, to be honest, we probably really only achieved like as we were, you know, as we were selling the organization. Right? Yeah. But, but, you know, like it's funny that was the plan, right? Like that was this, you know, like when we talk about that long-term yeah. objective, it's, it's, what is it? Is it Parkinson's law or it's like you set yourself mm-hmm. that time? Or yeah. How much time you allow yourself is how always just on time type yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, awesome. To, before we go, the next, the last segment we do is quick fire. So it's just kind of, yeah. I do have to preface. It's not quick fire. Like it's yeah. just answers to questions, but, sure. um, how do you become a better entrepreneur then? Like, like, and I know that's a big question, but more mm. just like on a broad stance, like, 
if you look back at your career and you're obviously still going strong, mm. what do you attest to becoming a better entrepreneur? Because like some mm. people would say education, but like what what is it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, to, to answer the question specifically, like, you know, what do you need to do to become a better entrepreneur? Not like, what do you need to have or any of those sorts of things? Um, I, I think w- one of the overarching things, which, and, and just to be clear again, this worked for me, like this might not be a philosophy that works for everyone else, but I, I always found that the thing that made things easier for me over time in leaps and bounds progressively throughout the journey was that, you know, I, I had a desire yeah, like I, I ultimately had a desire to be a to become a great business person, right? So if we just forget the term entrepreneur for a sec, right, yeah, and yeah. you know, kind of pull that away, it's like being a great business person. In my opinion, you know, there's plenty of people that are good at marketing, plenty of people that are good at product, ops, like you know, one thing here, there, or the other place, right? But I've always had the view to actually be really good at marketing. You have to be a good business person to be really good at finance you have to be a good business person to be good at hr you have to be a good business person being good at a function does not make you a good business person right in the same way that being a good business person doesn't make you an amazing marketer right yeah, yeah, okay you know but being a really good business person means that you understand the machine okay yeah right you understand how business works you understand what like the what the rules and principles and axioms are you know to you know, man, you know, to start, you know, grow, manage, sell a business, whatever it is. And the reason why, to me, that's the most important is because you have a way of thinking about business problems, right? If you're a marketing person, you only have a way of thinking about marketing problems, maybe, right? You know, a lot of people rely on, you know, tactics and shit they've implemented in other businesses. But like, if I was to go, if I was to take, cool, we did heaps of social media marketing and community management at Sweat and go and work with this mining parts manufacturer <laughs> yeah you think there's a community of people doing that on instagram like i don't think so right you know so by being a good business person you can be good in any business and that was always like i always said to myself strive for excellence in business yeah like don't just strive for excellence in your business yeah i love that and i think it talks to as well like you talked about understanding the machine and i think mm. that in itself is just such great advice because yeah. all the problems you face in business probably come from not understanding the machine you know like like yeah like a lot of the fundamental problems like you kind of talked about it in terms of you build a business where the focus is you or Mm. you're the in and you become the constraint is because you Mm. don't truly understand the machine and i think that's a journey in itself and that it even kind of talks to what we were talking about at the beginning of like business coaches and Mm. this kind of stuff but like you only can truly understand the machine from building the machine. And because yeah. like observing. in theory, yeah, observing a hundred percent, but I think in theory you can understand it. Yeah. But then how to solve the particular problems. Yep. You know, it's like the excellence mastery thing. Like, you know, oh, like man, I, over I, and over I, again. Yeah. You know? Literally was just about to say, like, I think, you know, if, 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 the go- yeah, if the goal is to like master business or achieve business excellence or be an excellent business person or however you choose to kind of phrase that, right? In order to be great or master anything, a, 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 a prerequisite for that is to actually understand mastery in general, right? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I'm sure lots of people have kind of heard of uh, this notion of like 
the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? You know, that people ultimately it's this kind of balance or visualization of competence versus confidence, right? And people who are really confident are normally the ones who are not that good at what they're doing, right? And in business, unfortunately, and especially for founders, right? Hey, how is their confidence built? Well, they're an environment where they're the leader, they pay the bills, they recruit people, they make all the money, they're making the decisions, they're in control, right? And so they have, um, why I often refer to this as like the Midas touch bias, right? I don't know if that's a real thing, but that's what I call it, right? It's like more often than not, if the business has some degree of success and kind of runs for a couple of years and grows, well, it's my business, I did this, you know? I touched it, like it's great. You know, all of my ideas are the reason that it's great, right? And so they have this perspective that, well, I must be good at business. Almost all the time, that statement is untrue. You know, they were good at something that helped them build a business. That doesn't make their business great. It doesn't make them great at business. It doesn't make them masters of, you know, the art of, you know, uh, founding, growing, selling, whatever it might be, your organizations. And, Unfortunately, for a lot of people, um, founders, you know, they get trapped in this mindset where they're like, well, I've done a lot and achieved a lot, therefore I must be great. Uh, survivorship bias is, a, is another way of articulating a, a version of that, right? You know, but unfortunately, that's not true. That's not a representation of the fact that you're great, you know, and you see this all the time with people going, yep, I understand why my business is growing. It's super simple. At that point in time, turn the, off the radio. Yeah, at, the, at that point in time with the conversation, like in most contexts, especially as it relates to business, it's like cool. So, subscription is super simple, right? Acquire more than you lose. Awesome, right? But like, no, like yeah, cool. That's great. But now what? And how does that actually work in the real world? Like, it's not. None of these things are simple. You know, I normally. I get a lot of respect for people when they're asked questions, and I know it's like, what's their content online, and the answer is normally like, well sometimes or it depends or maybe if this is true like you know because they they're at a level of skill knowledge and competence where they're able to understand that nuance is everywhere and that things are actually incredibly complicated right um unfortunately founders don't live in a reality or a world where they're able to experience that which is why coming back to the whole advisory board or mentor or coach or whatever it might be they're really valuable because they provide a completely unbiased view and hopefully they're uh, you know kind of comfortable calling founders on their shit if if that's you know where they find themselves yeah i love it i love it i think that's a really good conversation for people to just listen to around mm. and it kind of t- touches on the what we were talking about like mastery and, mm. and why you should aim to be a, a great business person yeah um because then you'll i think You'll ask the right questions. Well, yeah, and, you fo- you're focusing on the right stuff. You know, yeah. like a lot of people go, oh, well, I want to grow my business. It's like, but again, we, we go right back to the beginning. It's like, is that even, you know, is growth even the answer? And if so, to what problem? Yeah. And you've got to want to answer that question, right? Like yeah. there's a difference. There's, there's a difference to being wanting to be told the answer mm. and to actually wanting to understand the answer. And I think mm. that's the difference. That's what mm. makes you a great business person. Yep. Because when you want to be a great business person, you want to understand the answer to that question so deeply yeah. that you can start to repeat that process. And yeah, I think and that's a yeah, and you're happy to face into the discomfort, right? Like, I mean, one of the overwhelming, um, yeah, uh, and repeated learnings that I see working with uh, other people trying to build their organization is that you know, like, how how uh, willing are you to engage in uncertainty and discomfort, mm. right? Because 
that like uncertainty and discomfort comes in like a variety of forms yeah along the founder's journey you know the arc of the journey however you want to kind of view that right but you know the, the, the discomfort to accept that maybe you don't know the discomfort to accept that maybe you need to learn the discomfort to accept that maybe you don't even know what it is you don't even know you know like there's all <laughs> yeah, these yeah, yeah, yeah. there's all these things right but they're incredibly uncomfortable and you see uh, from the outside a lot and I, I spent a lot of time working with a, a huge amount of different venture funds yeah, in my in my journey with sweat and one of the learnings that, that a lot of people shared with me was that they spent a lot of time trying to understand the founder because the founder is more often than not the ceiling that's placed in the business it's not normally the business that places a ceiling or the industry or the market or whatever that that causes the barrier right it's more often than not the founder that's really uncomfortable for founders to hear you know and acknowledge I think it talks to the growth that you must you must mm. try to uh, you know strive for. Yeah. Um, internally, not not externally. Yeah. All right, quick fire. Shoot, let's do it. One piece of advice for your younger self. Four. Be more comfortable being wrong. Why? Because uh, I, when I was much younger and earlier in the journey, I felt like if I was wrong it represented that I wasn't capable of being a leader when later on I realized that being able to be regularly wrong and publicly wrong is actually a representation of great leadership and so now now knowing that and you know having you know gotten much more comfortable with that later in my journey I just you know how much more time would have been saved and money and emotion would have been saved if I was just like you know what you're wrong man and let people know that you know that you're wrong and they're right I think um I think about what you're saying before around competence and confidence and I think mm. true confidence comes when you are able to yeah say that I'm yep. I'm probably wrong or I could be wrong yeah because um, then you can question and you can be vulnerable with other people yeah factors into management and so on I found yeah. massively so I love that mm. okay so what advice would you give to someone who's just starting a business. Mm. When we say just starting, let me just calibrate. I just want to make sure I, I get an answer. So, so what, the, uh, the product is live, like the you know they've got a they're selling something already. No, I would say they're about to they're about to they've got an idea and they're 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 about to choose whether or not they this is their journey. They're yeah. going to embark on it. Yeah. Look, I mean, at the end of the day, the like lots of people will say this, and it's incredibly cliche, but like just go and try. You know, like at the, at the end of the day, more more things are killed before they start than after they start right because there's a lot more people that have great ideas and great being very subjective right but you know like great ideas that could potentially come something that they don't because they're worried about failing they're worried about what their friend might think or their mom or their partner or whatever right um and, and just to be clear like I, I can even relate to that now you know like i sit here now after having built multiple businesses you know sold one raising money for a couple of other ones i own working with lots of people now like even every like i still second guess myself from time to time but like i try to become aware of that and deliberately face into it mm-hmm. um which is a skill you know as well but like for people who are just kind of getting started it's like you not to be rude but a really kind of like blunt and objective statement was would be you don't even have enough knowledge to know why you might fail <laughs> so that's a great way to put it yeah and so purely as a result of that don't be so arrogant to think that you know you will fail, just go and do it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a quite a savage way, like of looking at it's it. It's a great reframe, though. It's a, it's a very honest reframe. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. Okay, so what's the most important trait that a founder must have for success, and why? Uh, look, based on the 
people that I work with now uh, and, you know, kind of just experience working with teams and, and whatever over the years, I think, um, you know, again, multifactorial question, right? You yeah. know, um, I'm a, I, yeah. That's why I say quick fire. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But so I, I think if I had to kind of go like hard and fast, it'd probably be that I think, you know, being, becoming and trying to become emotionally aware, I, I think mm-hmm. would, would be a really important one. Um, largely because most problems in business are people and mostly the person or people that are creating the problems is you <laughs> but you don't very often realize that until way later so if you're spending more time on one thing I think that's a good a good area to invest yeah it's, especially as a founder usually yeah. everything spreads through the company and yeah, yeah yeah very much love it awesome mate I want to say a massive thank you um, for coming on the show uh, I could sit here all day and, <laughs> and, and do this me too I'm sure you can see that <laughs> uh, I, I'm you know um, very lucky to be able to, to, to have the conversation so extremely grateful I uh, know time's precious as well so appreciate that Johnny Boy thanks for coming on the show no no thanks not, man <laughs> not thanks for coming on the show thanks for putting it together um, where can everybody find you um, yeah. obviously on Instagram yeah um, uh, handle is Toby underscore Pierce is T- there any, anything else yeah. Not, not to be honest, not really. Like I'm pretty lazy yeah. <laughs> on that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, for anyone listening to this, like uh, wherever they're at in the journey or whatever they're doing, like I'd love to, love to hear from you. Love to be able to help. You know, um, uh, love to be able to understand what what part of the journey they're on and see if I can provide some value. I mean, like I, I think I said before we, yeah, before we officially started recording. You know, I'm, I'm just passionate about business in general. Like this is my sport obsession. It's my food obsession. Yeah, whatever yeah, it is, okay. you know, like this is this is what I'm about. So no question is silly like no business is silly no idea is silly no nothing like i, I want to hear from people and kind of you know see what they have to say so yeah please hit me up on instagram love to love to have a chat and connect yeah awesome awesome i think it rings true as well you know just mm. from the conversation we've had um and to everyone listening a massive thanks for all the support without you guys we don't get to have these conversations so really appreciate it and we'll see you next week thanks so much man